Oh yeah, let's get it. Monday, February 8th, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you had a great week outside of podcast land. We had a hearing, but as of this recording, haven't had the confirmation. But I can say with pretty good certainty that the 11th Secretary of Veterans Affairs will be Dennis McDonough. And we look forward to putting a full court press to get him here on the show as soon as possible. No ratings or reviews on Apple Podcasts this week. However, we did get a couple of comments on blogs. And you can find those blogs on blogs.va.gov. Before we get into those, I also got a response from a buddy of mine who actually looked up the town of Montana that I couldn't pronounce in, in last week's Born the Battle Rewind. The town is pronounced Haver. So, so I apologize to the entire population of Haver, Montana for mispronouncing the town's name. Again, it's spelled like Farve with an H. So I pronounced it Harve. It's Haver. So. Appreciate my friend who sent me a video message telling me that he went on YouTube after the podcast and actually looked up what the actual sound, what the actual pronunciation of the town is. So that was pretty funny. All right, on to the blog comments. Episode 226 blog that featured Scott Stump had a lot of Gulf War veterans post and share their accounts. And it was great to read all the stories. Episode 227's blog, which was the episode that featured Vietnam veteran and New York bestselling author John Del Vecchio. James Lavania said, I have read all of John's books, and every one was factional and emotional. I learned last year that John was a Connecticut resident from one of the girls when I was in therapy at West Haven VA. It's great to know that John continues his quest to educate the average American about Vietnam and how it affected us, the veterans. It haunts me to this day. James, I'm glad, and I'm sure John is glad that you enjoy his books. And yes, I'm glad that John does the work he does as well. I personally learned a lot in just the short amount of time that I was able to talk with him. Donald F. Smith writes, I look forward to reading Del Vecchio's book. I was a United States Air Force combat news representative photographer with the 3rd Tactical Fighter Squadron stationed at Ben Hoa Air Base, South Vietnam. 72171 Information Technician, Staff Sergeant, 1968. My unit flew the F-100 Super Saber. Donald, I looked up that plane, and it looks pretty wicked. I also saw that it flew in the military for 16 years, from 54 to 70. That must have been a sight to see. Appreciate you writing in. And finally, the bonus episode where we broke down the CARES Act Federal Home Loan Protection Extensions with a couple of directors from the CFPB, from the Consumer Final from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Will Lloyd Owen commented, Good day. I think he might be Australian. I said, Good day. What is the song at the end of the episode? I, I don't know if that's Australian or not. Slick 240 Bravo. Chain of bullets belt fed. Like I say, at the end of every episode, the song is called Machine Gunner and it is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark Milkilhenny. Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, who also performs the song, and Michael Duncan. It's hard to find cover in a poppy field, but I sure as hell ain't no runner, machine gunner. Bullets fly, they in that brain, super fly, do 
Finally, Robert Allison Smith stated, they still charge you interest if you owe the government money. That is what they don't tell you. Robert, I appreciate your input, uh, but what you said was a little vague. Uh, you can owe the government money for many different things, but not in the case of owning a home. You, you don't owe the government money. You owe the bank, credit union, or mortgage company money. The VA just backs your loan. Basically, if you default on your loan to the bank, the bank still gets their money through VA. It's a reason that a VA home loan is attractive to some banking institutions. Uh, there's some pros and cons to it, of course. Uh, and we cover all of the pros and cons in episode 150. So if you if you want to look at what a VA home loan entails, that's a good episode to listen to here on Born the Battle. Now, with the CARES Act, uh, what we covered inside the episode, we covered accruing interest during forbearance. Spoiler, you don't. And many other myths like having to pay it back all at once. Again, this is some of the things that I learned while listening to some of the subject matter experts at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So if you haven't taken a look at that bonus episode where it talks about forbearance protection for your home, go check it out. And as always, I appreciate all the feedback every week. And if you like what we're doing here, please consider smashing that subscribe button and leaving a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts, even if you listen to us on a different podcatcher. In doing so, you'll either be letting me know what you would like to see out of the podcast, or you'll be helping to push this podcast up higher in the algorithms, giving more veterans a chance to catch the information provided not only in the interviews, but in the benefits breakdown episodes and in the news releases. Kicking off news releases, we got a statement from the acting secretary of VA. Uh, it talks about a President Biden executive order that was issued on January 22nd. It says it is to address the economic hardships the veteran community faces during the ongoing pandemic. It goes on quoting Mr. Tran by saying, and I quote, through no fault of their own, our veterans and their loved ones continue to face economic hardship during the pandemic. I want to assure veterans, their family members, survivors, and caregivers that we are doing everything we can to lessen the burden and worry. Effective today, VA will extend the existing moratorium on evictions and foreclosures until March 31st, 2021. VA borrowers experiencing financial hardships due to COVID-19 can review VA guidance for borrowers or call one 877 827 3702 for additional information. VA is also looking for immediate ways to help over 2 million veterans maintain their financial footing by exploring options to ease the burden of federal collections on compensation, pension overpayments, medical, and education-related debt. VA will provide updated information and guidance for veterans at VA.gov on this effort as soon as possible. VA is focused on lessening these financial hardships for America's veterans. We'll continue to work with our partners in Congress and veteran service organizations to honor our veterans and their families by providing care and benefits they earned and deserve. Very well. All right, the next one, and I'm not going to go too much in depth with it because it's a news release that where VA is celebrating about itself and a 75-year academic partnership. But one thing that I read in there that is interesting that you might like is that through the VA's Office of Academic Affiliations Program, I learned that VA provides training to nearly 70% of the United States physicians. I just thought that was an incredible stat line. And you can learn more about the Office of Academic Partnerships at va.gov forward slash OAA. All right, next one says, for immediate release, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs published a draft decision for criteria on February 1st in the Federal Register 
to be used by VA secretary to develop recommendations for future for the future of Veterans Health Administration's healthcare. The criteria are based on specific factors outlined in the VA Mission Act of 2018, which gives veterans greater access to healthcare in VA facilities and the community and input received through collaboration with stakeholders including veterans and veteran service organizations. The criteria includes the following categories: veterans need for care and services, accessibility for care of veterans, impact on mission, providing the highest quality of whole health care, effective use of resources, and ensuring a safe environment of care. In accordance with the Mission Act, VA is conducting market assessments for each VA's markets to design high-performing networks of care. The networks will consist of a more flexible platform that can provide quality, readily accessible, cost-effective care through VHA, through the Veterans Health Administration, and leverage the best of care provided by federal partners, academic affiliates, and other private sector providers. Recommendations from the assessments will be finalized utilizing the approved criteria and submitted by VA Secretary to the Presidentially Appointed Asset and Infrastructure Review Commission, otherwise known as the AIR Commission, for their consideration in January of 2022. In addition to analyzing public comments, VA is hosting virtual listening sessions in the coming months. The feedback will be used to provide recommendations for creating networks of care to be reviewed by the AIR Commission, President Biden, and Congress. View the draft decision criteria and make comments at the Federal Register webpage. The public comment period ends 90 days after February 1st, which is, you know, it's coming right up. Now, the URL is a little long, but I'll put a link to the register in this episode's blog on blogs.va.gov. Going to federalregister.gov and making a comment about the Mission Act of 2018 is good because unlike a comment on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, the powers that be will be forced to read and consider your comments. I would say that if you've used community care or if you're a caregiver that falls under the act, I would say your input is especially valuable. You can go to federalregister.gov and search for draft criteria for Section 203 of the VA Mission Act of 2018 and navigate your way to it. Or you again, you can go to this episode's blog on blogs.va.gov. Just look up Born the Battle 228, and I'll have a link towards the bottom of the blog. Again, you've got less than 90 days from the podcast episode drop to get your word in. All right, this week is a little treat for me. Uh, I first interviewed this guest over 10 years ago for a Marine Corps production, and I remember that he had so many quotable quotables that he could have had a production that we could have made a video that just featured him. He's a retired Lieutenant General, actually one of only six African-American Lieutenant Generals ever in the Marine Corps. He served as the 19th Deputy Chairman of the NATO Military Committee, providing strategic military counsel on operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya to NATO's Secretary General and North Atlantic Council. He's also the first African-American commanding general to ever command a Marine division. He accomplished that as the commanding general of the 2nd Marine Division at Camp Lejeune from 2006 to 2008. In addition to that role, he simultaneously served as the commanding general of two Marine Expeditionary Force Forward. During this tour, Lieutenant General Gaston also led the 2nd MEF Forward during its year-long deployment to Al-Anbar Province in Iraq as the commanding general of Multinational Force West. Our guest most recently served as the CEO of Laporte Tech Defense. He's a graduate of Savannah State University, an ROTC scholarship program with a Bachelor of Science. 
He earned a summa cum laude master's degree in public administration from the University of Oklahoma and completed the senior executive seminar from the JFK School of Government at Harvard University. He is now the secretary of the North Carolina Department of Military and Veteran Affairs. And we know that state has a lot of veterans in it. He is Marine Corps veteran Walter Gaskin. Enjoy. Uh, back back then, I was hoping that you liked your placement in the in the 235th birthday message. Uh, it was that was one of my, to be honest, that was one of my favorite parts of the message. Uh, when you said it's our duty to go out and do the bidding for our nation when they call upon us to serve, as that cobra was rising, uh, as the Marines were taking the hill. I think we use that as a tr- transition because it was a it was a great link between what the Marines were saying and what the commandant ended on. Right. It was well received by the Marines. And and the thing that we uh, were able to convey to the nation of, you know, our our duties and not only that we were the first to fight, we would be there when the battles won. You know, when, you know, as General Crew like used to say, you know, winning battles for our nation is our calling. Exactly. Um, you know, your interview, I remember that you had a lot of isms. You had a lot of good quotes. And I just remember it was a great conversation that, and, you know, we wanted to, but we couldn't fit all the isms in. And looking back, we probably could have just made a production based on that conversation alone, which is, again, which is why I'm glad we got this time today. You know, it's, it's good being, you know, being a Marine uh, kind of inspires you in, in itself. Absolutely. Sir, I'm going to go back, you know, we start the, we start every interview with Born the Battle by going back a little bit. Uh, when and where did you decide to enter the Marine Corps in the first place? You know, uh, living in, uh, growing up in Savannah, Georgia, you know, that's 35 miles from uh, Paris Island. And so going over to uh, Hilton Head and and then one of my cousins, which is a same, we were like, you know, second cousins because they were the kid of my mother's first cousin, joined the Marine Corps. And uh, we were in junior high school and he went to Vietnam as a Marine. And, you know, uh, unlike uh, anything else, you know, even from those that uh, returned from World War II, a Marine coming to Savannah or, or the Marines returning to Vietnam, it was not like, you know, the rest of the nation was all against the war. This was a genuine hero. And I kept saying, you know, even though we had a mil- army base there, to be a Marine was top of the notch. And I always said, you know, even while I was in the Army ROTC in high school, I wanted to be a Marine. Um, so when I got a an ROTC scholarship, you know, I, I discovered then that even going to the Naval Academy or going to ROTC, that they produced both sailors and Marines. So I was, I was in there. So it's like from a kid, I always wanted to be a Marine. It's interesting that you, you, that your, your second cousin that came back from Vietnam was hailed as a hero uh, from Vietnam. Cause again, like you said, that wasn't the norm then at that point in time. No. And um, what you will, uh, will see too, even more in, in the African-American community, having been a part of both the, those guys from World War II and Korea and now Vietnam, you know, they were fighting for the right to fight. And they were absolutely heroes. And so it was, and, and being, uh, the, 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 the Southern town that appreciates service. Yeah. 
these guys just stood out like in a hero. I mean, I like, uh, we had a parade for our, our returning Vietnam veterans. Really? What year yeah. was that? This was in the 69. Wow. Wow. And, you know, and all of us then were, uh, you know, a member of the draft. So I remember my number, uh, 103. And the only reason that I didn't get drafted to go to Vietnam was because I had a college uh, deferment. And I, so I said, and even more, the fact that I was going to ROTC and with a mandatory service, you know, my deferment was deferred from, from college. So, but they knew you were already going. It's like, Oh, he's going to ROTC. He's, he's in the system. That was, that was a system with the draft then mm. is that, you know, if you were, if you had, you had a college deferment or if you were uh, continuing education that you, you would have, you know, or some uh, medical capability uh, prevented you. But other than that, Everybody, uh, everybody signed up and was given a number. Interesting. So, uh, sir, looking at your bio, one thing that stuck out to me, uh, a couple of things that stuck out to me were operations, assured response and quick and quick response in the 90s with the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit, uh, reinforcing the embassies in Liberia and Central African Republic. It was a mission that we were taking a look at doing in Kiev in 2014. Um, and it's actually what my battalion did when I was attached to them in, in Libya. Uh, back in 2014, mm-hmm. uh, these these operations they're they're the type that if if they come off without a hitch, they get a footnote in the news. But if they don't, they're headlines. Can you run me back through the circumstances of of those two operations? Okay, um, what the Marine Corps because we had the Marines in the embassies for protection of classified stuff as well as the ambassadors. Yeah, uh, we get these calls all the time. Uh, building the Marine Expeditionary Unit of the Muse took that as one of their missions, and that was to evacuate, which we call non-combatant evacuations, yeah. was to evacuate any citizens that was caught in between whatever political strife that was going on in in the in the city. So, the time yeah. of Liberia, which is Liberia, has a direct correlation to the United States because. You know, uh, Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, was named after our president, Monroe, and that we uh, were turning, number of returning uh, slaves from the United States went back. And so there was a special relationship. And at the time, you know, when you got a nation that's uh, modeled that of America in Africa, South and Southwest Africa, being overrun and and the ambassador was in uh, trouble. So we had responded once before to that. And this time, Charles Taylor, who was uh, really fighting against the um, the nation, the, the free elections of the nation. And 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 we were frankly, uh, when that mission came to us, we was in uh, Bosnia. Uh, doing that patrol because of the oh, wow. strife that they were having. And we got the call uh, that we had the uh, the ambassador and all of the normal protective, because uh, the United States had the thing to protect all of the other countries, France, Great Britain, that was the embassies there for the protection, yeah. were, were, were being uh, overrun or potentially to, because of the strife, in the streets, you know, rounds were coming into the embassy and the 
areas. So, so we, uh, so I and my team, cause I was the uh, BLT commander. Okay. Uh, took and flew to, uh, um, the car, Senegal, and then down into there to, to reinforce. And meantime, the, the mute, the 22nd mute steamed around. It was going to take 10 days for them to get there. Yeah. At the same time, though, uh, Central African Republic was having a problem, too. So I deployed my LAR company to fly into there to to protect their embassy at the same time. You know, those are two operations that, um, like I said, they're kind of footnotes in the news because, I mean, did they go off without a hitch? Is there anything about those missions? Uh, that- uh, yeah, we, we had some uh, really tough times and that, you know, we uh, – we we had we evacuated you know some uh, of all of our all of our, hundreds of our personnel and third country nationals as well as some of the uh, some of the uh, the support for for the embassy we brought them out aboard uh, the the amphibs to transport them uh, back we were dropping them off in uh, out of the area very good very good. You know, it was uh, it was really uh, combat. Matter of fact, um, that's where I got my first bronze star was in the fight there and the in securing the embassy in Liberia. Tracking. So, you mentioned another issue that was happening in the in the mid nineties. Uh, see, Croatian is my heritage. I, okay. I, my family came from Croatia, so so Yugoslavia was uh, you know was was breaking up at the time. What was the what was the expeditionary unit's mission that, up there? Well, you know, um, you know, you had uh, Serbia and you had the whole um, the uh, central area, you know, that were Bosnia, Herzegovina, Syria, uh, certainly Serbia and Croatia, all of those countries that were uh, after they were breaking up of the old Yugoslavia and the, and the part of, uh, of uh, Russia's Soviet complex, they still had issues with each other and the the Muslims as well as the Christians were still uh, were still fighting each other in the in the northern part of that area and uh, after not just Christians but Christians and Orthodox Christians like that's correct yeah. that's correct yeah. it's and and this, and this and this goes back thousands of years you know now I don't think any not many people know that what what that conflict entail the history that entails. But, you know, um, what was really uh, difficult about that is that um, you could really tell the different communities and enclaves by their architecture. And they had been neighbors for hundreds of years and they would walk out and shoot each other. Now, at that breakup, that's how how suppressed uh, their particular areas were when they was under Tito in Yugoslavia and all of that just busted apart, yeah. and it yeah. was it was really uh, a, a lot of folks didn't uh, worldwide didn't see it. All they saw it was that in Central Europe you were having problems, that but they didn't realize the cultural problems that they were having. And how many lives that that, that conflict cost? Uh, I think it's more than what people realize. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, sir, as a, as a flag officer. You held you held many billets uh, as well, many joint as well. Vice director of the Joint Chiefs uh, in 2008, you were the CG of not only the Second uh, Marine Expeditionary Force, but the Commanding General of, the, of all multinational forces West. 
uh, Chief of Staff of Naval Striking Forces, Southern Europe. And one other position that I, I will save uh, that's usually reserved for a four or five star billet, and I'll get more detailed in, into that in a, in a bit. But while you were in, what was the hardest for you? What was the hardest decision that you ever had to make? And in, in, in which job? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all, all of them, all of them had their uh, had their issues. Yeah, I would I would say what would what would be your number one and what was what was the way you that how did you mitigate it one of the, the greatest difficulty of a marine officer in the joint world is teaching the other services how the marine corps fights a lot of those things you become the first marine to do that our magtaf is a joint organization when you look at the outside of the Marine Corps. You know, we have our own Air Force, we have our own logistic hub, we have our combat aspect, and we put it in together and we call it, you know, a Marine Joint Task Force, basically, about MACTA. So, yeah. but when you go into those joint uh, assignments, like I remember when I was out in AMBAR, um, and I had Army units working for me, but I had our MAGTAF. I remember talking to my my immediate boss then was uh, General Odenero. You know, he wanted me to take and drop my uh, Air Force that I had out at Al-Assad, send them up as a, to be with the Air Force. And he wanted me to take my logistics of the, uh, my portion of the FSB forward and send them to be with the Army Sustainment Command. No, no, that's not how we fight. So, yeah, he, so he wanted he wanted a, he wanted all the Marine Corps assets for his guys. Well, he wanted to he he wanted to break it up into what he was calling his joint force. But see, yeah. the Marine Corps, as I explained it to them, and what all Marines do is that our ta- Marine Corps Air Ground Task Force is a force within your force, you know, give us an area. And that's how we end up with Ambar. Give us an area and we'll, we'll defend it. But, you know, and we don't, and we're self-sustained. We have our own logistics system. We have our aviation system and how to resupply. So, but we, uh, we're well capable of, of doing the mission because if you, you spread out the, into the MEF, the MEF is a core level organization. And that yeah. and that began to, for them to understand, and that's why when we had uh, the muse that came out into Fifth Fleet, that they they were chopped to to me in Ambar, um, so so that we could actually do our fight. You know, I told them I have twenty two jets out here. I have as many helicopters as the uh, army has up there. I'm, I'm capable of doing those sort of things. And so, and I also had attached to me two, um, two divisions, the first, the second and the seventh from the Iraqis, as well as I had a, a two brigades from, from the army. What was your, I guess, most challenging decision, both in a combat situation or, and in a non-combat situation? Right then we were dealing with how the, how the Blackwater situation had occurred. And our goal was to separate uh, those combatants from uh, the, the population so we didn't have uh, destructions in, in the, into the Sooks or in, into the little villages. You, you didn't want uh, contract retaliation on 
uniform troops. Well, well, that's exactly right. And you, you know, and yeah. we had, you know, we had some uh, cultural things uh, that we had to to deal with. Uh, matter of fact, um, how I became uh, good friends with Stan McChrystal, later worked for him, was that you know he had special forces, and yeah. his guys did a hit inside um, our area, just outside of the town of Hit. And one of the sheiks, who was a good guy, was a uh, was killed in that uh, that operation, and we did not know that they were coming. Oh wow! And so you know the folks, because of the death of the sheikh, were ready to you know turn on. And my Marines and and, and sailors and soldiers were living out uh, out among these, and so they were the eyes and ears for for the soldiers so that they would not be, um, out, you know, Al Qaeda would not uh, attack them without us knowing. So they were the intel. That's right, and. Uh, and that's how I first, you know, really got to to know Stan McChrystal. He flew out to talk to me about what do we had to do, and and uh, we had to talk to those uh, group of sheiks about what had happened. And then he later became the director of the Joint Staff, and I was his vice director. So a relationship was built through that. Yeah, well, I mean, like I'm saying, that's a part of that joint, that joint thing, and yeah, and uh, what is what is your t- territory, and how the army positions up. Um, How did you mitigate that with the shakes? Well, the thing is that they knew uh, that we have concern about um, folks who live among them. Yeah. And the agreement that we had with them is that they would they would let us know so that we could preclude things like the uh, intel community discovering that uh, they had a high ranking uh, guy living living among them and uh and came to get him. He just happened to be at the compound of that shake. Oh, wow. Uh, but a, uh, what was not known is that is where he kept his wife. And uh, it's. Uh, it, was not, it was an unfortunate accident. It was an unfortunate accident. It was not an intentional. That's right. And, yeah. uh, and the other thing that they did was that um, what we had taken care of is that we. Uh, had used women for patting down women. And uh, yeah. when the special forces came in, they just, they were stripping women down and everything. So it was, it was a, could have been a, a, a full part. But you guys were able to work it out with the shakes. We were able to work it out and the shakes uh, appreciated that uh, yeah. more than anything else is that, you know, the big guys would actually come down to talk to them. Uh, which led to the reason that when uh, President uh, Bush came out, he met in Ambar. Those sheikhs in, invited uh, him out to uh, to do that. Very good. Um, now, sir, you were also the deputy, but for a short time, the acting chairman of the NATO Military Committee. Yes, uh, it's a bill. That, it's a bill that was first held held by General Omar Bradley, and that was the first, and that was the second one since Omar Bradley. Oh. The second American? The second American. See, there was a, this was a, this was agreement and the Americans agreed that we would never hold the, uh, the billet of chairman. We will always have an American three star would always be the deputy chairman. Yeah. But we will never be the chairman, uh, after, after Omar and, but they will give us in charge of all of the military forces and, and, and Sakir, Sakir would be in charge of all 
all the military forces. It's NATO Supreme Allied Commander. That, that deputy coin you gave me, uh, to me, it trumps any other coin that I ever got previous or after because <laughs> everyone, everyone knows the billet of the NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, Eisenhower's old billet, right? Um, right. Now, looking, but looking at that command structure, that's a billet that reports to that body. That, that's exactly right. And that's why I, I, when I tried to explain to, to them, and that's why I wanted to make that uh, billet a four-star billet, because that billet uh, is senior to the Allied Forces Commander. And I tried, and I explained it to them in this way. Um, it's like a combatant commander, like CENTCOM or UCOM. It's a, it's a four-star billet. But they report to the chairman of Joint Chiefs. That's the relationship of SACUR is to the um, chairman of the military committee. You know, he is he is basically our, I mean, the global chairman of Joint Chiefs. And SACUR is just one of the combatant commanders. Yeah. His combatant command covers all 28, all of the 28 um, commanders of their forces or the charge, they call them, reports to the chairman and as well as SACU. And, and, and you were able to be in that billet for 45 days. That's right. Uh, that's pretty amazing. But you know how, you know how that happened though. Um, my boss then was John DePaolo DePaolo. He was Italian and he had been the chairman of the military committee and yeah. his country called him to be their secretary of defense, Italy. Oh, wow. And he and he he was in Afghanistan because the chairman makes the you know go down to review the troops making the rounds. and making the rounds. And he was in Afghanistan when the uh, the prime minister of Italy fired their minister of defense and appointed Apollo by phone to do that. So he called me at night and says, "I, I I'm calling you before I call the secretary general." And tell him that I'm going to accept the Minister of Defense because of our troops here in in, in Italy, because they was out near the town of Herat, and that's closest to the Iranians, and the Iranians are are overrunning this area because our Minister of Defense is an idiot. And I'm calling, <laughs> and I'm calling, <laughs> and I'm calling you to tell you that I'm doing that. That would automatically kick you in, and I wanted to give you a heads up because. The uh, secretary general will be calling you. And that's how. Interesting. So you became part of the command history of that billet. That's right. One thing I also noticed when looking at the command history, many countries, generals filled that role, but none of African descent. And when I look into your, when I went into your interview with, with Mr. Rick Robinson, all those years ago, also a former guest here on Born the Battle, uh, first interview I ever did, actually. So if you're listening to this, go check it out. He's an Emmy Award winning cinematographer. Also a Marine, right. uh, also, also one of my greatest mentors, also African-American. Right. And he explained, and he explained to me, you know, we, you know, we were always taught and I was always taught to see green. We all bleed red, but up to that point, I didn't know that, that we had never had an African-American four-star general. And still they haven't. And we had very, very, very few, uh, you and Lieutenant General Williams, who our office reported to when I was in the headquarters for Marine Corps combat camera. Uh, and you guys were both in it at the same time. We had very, very few three-star generals. We've, we've only had six. Yeah. <laughs> Still very, very, very small group. Yeah. Uh, 
But Rick explained to me the importance of the optics of your position and appointments and what it meant to the African-American community and, and to Lieutenant General Williams and, and to all six of you gentlemen uh, to have someone from the community be appointed based on merit, regardless of, of the melanin in one skin. Right. Did you ever feel pressure to perform because of what your appointments meant to many within the African-American community? Well, you know, um, yes, frankly, because it, <laughs> it was not only, you know, just a, a Marine being the first Marine to hold this billet. It was the first African-American Marine. And I, I remember uh, some instances that really brought it home. Two in particular, when I was a, when I was a chairman, one was um, we have uh, summits. You know, every two years, the NATO has a summit, and this particular summit was the first President Obama summit uh, with NATO, and we were in uh, uh, Lisbon, Portugal, and and it was the heads of state, and of course, you know, you being you being the, I was I was the deputy chairman. When you look around the table of all of the uh, charts from our the chairmans of their of, of NATO, I was sitting at that table. And when I came back to uh, talk to President Obama, and I looked around the room, we were the only two African Americans in the room of all of NATO's senior leadership. Wow. And it was it was amazing to me. And I looked at him and looked at me and said, I guess it's just me and you. <laughs> but you know, it was it was a it was a personal, you know, acclamation that, you know, we, we represented. The second time that I became aware of that is that I went to uh, when you when you check in as the uh, part of the military committee, you go and you meet the, the king of Brussels and the Queen and the uh you wait in the front room and then you have an audience with the king and the yeah. queen and uh, of, 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 of Belgium. And so I was waiting my turn to go in and they put you in a separate meeting uh, with uh, one of the either the king who is now who was then the uh, prince. He was heir to the throne and his wife. And so in my particular area, I was with the. Uh, the, the princess, she was going to become the queen when the king moved, moved up. And she was telling me about the beautiful ceiling that they had in there where they took all the uh, bugs, uh, beetles from the Congo, which was a, a beautiful green and they kind of trained color, you know, like the glowing bug that we had. Anyway, she was showing me the ceiling that they had taken all those chandeliers. They were covered with all of the these bugs. And she said to me, um, I'm really sorry about your bugs. And so I'm looking at her like, you know, I don't even think about no bugs. <laughs> and so her, the four-star Air Force general behind her, who was her aide, was, you know, kind of standing behind her, waving his hand like, hey, he's not from the Congo. He's from the United States, you know? <laughs> and she, wow. and so she, she, and so she was, you know, very apologetic which got me invited to a lot of good stuff at the, at the palace. But anyway, <laughs> but that was the first time that I, you know, it, it, it dawned upon me that the uh, members of NATO was not used to seeing a black person, whether it was for the black president or whether it was for me, uh, chairman of, uh, in this case, deputy chairman of the military committee. So it was, yeah. it was a thing. And so, and, and I uh, saw how, you know, 
Colin Powell felt when he was a secretary of state, some of the same way is that it was just, it was just not you. And it was no ill will. It was just surprise and a reckoning. And of course you to, uh, to realize, Hey, it just says, Oh yeah, (laughs) you don't know that, you know? And, and, and so it was, so those are times that I actually felt that, um, being the first, you know, just like being the, the first vice director of African-American descent of the joint staff uh, was there and and being the first African-American to go, to command the Marine Division. Yeah. You know, all those things you, you, you realize. But a real thing comes to mind when you when you have that thought is you're not the first one qualified of African-American descent, you're the first one given the opportunity. And that's what everybody looks at you and say is that you have actually opened the door, took down the ceiling. And frankly, that still remains the uh, position that you would like to see one day an African-American four-star. Yeah. How did you mitigate the pressure that you felt? How did you, how did you go? Okay. Not the first one qualified, but I am the first one. Well, you know, you know, I remember um, uh, some, you know, you, you have some frank discussions ab- about about that, yeah, especially when you're talking to your peers. And I remember, uh, frankly, uh, an incident of that nature when uh, General Krulak, um, you know, created the muse. He had, you know, he called them, you know, the goals and the, and the crown of the Marine Corps, and I became the first African-American to command a MEW. Yeah. Um, even though I had done all the things that were prerequisite, I'd had a BLT, I had deployed with the Navy, I had commanded at, at the level, you know, of equivalence to regimental commanders, and the MEW was a, you know, Magnificent Seven, they used to call them at the time. <laughs> yeah. You still had your peers say to you, well, did you get that because you were black? Yeah. Or did you get it because you were qualified? So that particular thing is that you, you know, I, I remember always laughing when I say that, it's like, you really think that the um, commandant is going to assign his one of his seven jewels to someone just for uh, affirmative action? You go think he's going to put his Marines at risk for what we do? Affirmative <laughs> action. Give me a break. And and then you find out that people say, well, that doesn't make any sense anyway. You know, as a matter of fact, nobody, nobody wants uh, the dentist that made these to do their teeth. You know, so, <laughs> you know, come on. So, so those things. And then on the other side of the uh, coin, the coin you have this thing too, is that I am here not to guarantee you uh, some end state. I'm here to show that you have the opportunity to prove how good you are. And if you aren't good, then you won't. It's not, it's, 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 it's opportunity and it's performance that counts. You know, the last thing that someone will ever should ever say to you. And I tell these young, young African-Americans, young white Americans, the last thing that someone can ever say to you is that you would want them to say that you didn't know what the hell you were doing. <laughs> you know, yes. that, I mean, yeah. if they say to you, I didn't give it because, you know, 
uh, because you know you uh, you 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 didn't drive the right car. I mean, I could see you could be upset, but if they says that you know your performance was shot, you know you didn't, well, then you 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 got problems. Yeah. And so if I'm going to give you an opportunity, you're going to have to demonstrate that you know what you have going for you. Exactly. And that's and that's like you said, that's that goes across the entire entire color spectrum. That's right. That's exactly right. So, and I like that you, you, um, you, you talk about, you know, some people just weren't used to, uh, an African-American in, in that position. And, and, you know, some people might be, uh, I guess, bitter or angry when, whenever they saw maybe a, a prince or princess, not knowing the, the right, you know, not saying it the right way or not doing, I, I like the humility. You, you were very, you understood the situation. Of course I did. I mean, she was, she had never seen, literally, you know, after we, after we talk about it, she had never seen a black leader in that position. They had never been an African-American yeah. who was SACUR or who was uh, chairman of the, I mean, you know, deputy chairman. So, she, you know, it was like, hey, it has to be somebody visiting from the Congo. They can't be coming here from, from, uh, from for some other reason because all of them, all of their senior military, came to them to you know, to to be accepted in the country and, and that kind of stuff. That was a tradition. And yeah. what part I think that she missed is that this group that was coming in was the NATO folks. Yeah, and and once uh, and once she got in. I, and I remember she was so gracious that she, you know, first of all, she just didn't understand what she had done wrong until finally it told her in French that I was not from the Congo. Wow. <laughs> and then, of course, I'm telling you, I got invited some great, great balls at the, and uh, as a special guest of the queen. Very good. Very good. How, how important was it for you to understand the situation as well? It was very important because um, we were we were demonstrating, and I think that if you if you look at the uh, the countries uh, in NATO that handled their uh, their integration good was the British and their Commonwealth. So their Commonwealth of uh, officers came and go, whether they was from India, whether they came from Jamaica, you know, it was, it was, it was different. Uh, so the idea of uh, them getting used to, you know, a black president, uh, a black chairman of the Joint Chiefs, a black secretary of state, you know, those kind of things they were, they were, they were getting used to, but they were, Occasion, you know, it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't uh, uh, regular. So it was, it was, it was. Uh, they didn't have, frankly, I found Europe uh, uh, to be very much so accommodating than than sending, frankly, in the uh, United States. Interesting, very interesting. Now, sir, this. This interview will probably be released during African American History Month, as we're coming right up on it. Uh, you know, the Marine Corps we knew we know of Montford Point Marines now Camp Johnson. Right. Uh, Army is highly aware of Buffalo Soldiers, uh, Army and Air Force Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, the video game Battlefield One taught me about uh, Harlem Hellfighters in World War One. Right. It, is the, is there another African American group in military history that don't get talked about maybe as much as these units? that veterans maybe should be aware of? 
Well, you know, um, the idea that uh, um, we are have equated our build up our month appoint Marines to hold their rightful place in the in in the services. Uh, we took a while to get the tow talkers, you know, into their rightful uh, specialties that they that they that they brought to be recognized. Yeah, to be recognized. I was just talking uh, to the guys uh, from uh, Marvel Point veterans here that the yeah. first African-American to be commissioned uh, was Fred Brandt in the United States Marine Corps on November 10th, 1945. He was from on the birthday. That's right. He was he was from Hamlet, North Carolina. And Howard Perry, who was the first Marine to go through the gates of now Camp Johnson, which would be Montfort Point, was from North Carolina, up near Charlotte. So the Marine Corps has recognized, you know, the Montfort Pointers finally has a Congressional Gold Medal. They have a ship named after them. They are beginning to, as veterans as a part, but the, but the Marine Corps has always appreciated uh, the staff NCO um, in of color in the Marine Corps, and Absolutely. and that's and that's how and that's how they got re- you know recognized and and the uh, and now Medal of Honor one and most recently one, uh, you know it's it's in, it's important that they're doing this as they realize is that uh, the those folks that wanted to be a Marine always believed that, you know, that they would have to fight for the right to be a part of America. But the Corps did not hold them back from performance. You know, if you if you flip on the officer side, it was limited. But if you always talk about being a Marine, and I think that helped, it definitely helped me and those that return to to society to realize how it should be. Um, it don't matter what type of uh, tensions that re- exist socially, being a Marine meant something. Folks, uh, whatever biases they have or whatever thing, they, they learn that a man-to-man, woman-to-woman core of being a Marine was special. It raised above all of the the other things that uh, that preclude someone that you you really looked at someone because you depended on who was on your right or left, you depended on who was coming behind you, and you depended on those shoulders you stood on. And I I think that for this, uh, the Marine Corps has been the, the the model for for the nation. Very very strong history in the Staff and Seal ranks. While you were in. Give me either a best friend or a greatest mentor. I I, uh, I have uh, you know my, my my best friend has always been uh, Ron Bailey in the in the Marine Corps. I've had three three mentors in the Marine Corps who who took care and and shaped me. The the, the first one was uh, Fred Jones. Fred Jones was my MOI. And he is, and he's still my my friend to today. And uh, the 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 one that um, took me by the hand as 
as a a, a Marine was um, that, I mean, from day one has been uh, General Krulak. Mm. General Krulak gave me opportunities and a realization of where I was and sprung out from him, you know, understanding the Marine Corps from a mentor perspective. And then I've, I've, I've picked up, you know, things like, I, you know, today, if you ask me who is my lady's daddy, I would say Jim Mattis, because we, we bonded, but we bonded as more closer to, to peers than, than, uh, than the mentor. And then uh, of the uh, African-American generals, it would be uh, Cliff Stanley, who, who kind of walked through the, the road before everyone else. I learned, I learned a lot from him, but the one who probably uh, was my friend and a battle buddy well, was Ron Bailey as we, as we went through things together, you know? Yeah. And he, you know, I always tease him that he uh, keeps copying after me, you know, um, when I was first African-American company commander at Paris Island, he had to get a company at Paris Island. When I commanded the second Marine division, he had to go and command the first he still cleaned the first. <laughs> Those guys uh, that formed the fire team that you were able to talk very candidly about where you are, what you stood, and and the lessons in life that, that you that you learned. And it, you know, uh, some folks you can't tell the uh, true stories of how things uh, happened, but you could sit down with these folks and talk to them about your experience. And I remember that I told uh, General Krulak my experience as a a lieutenant, uh, only of two African-American lieutenants in the battalion, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, and we were getting our first fitness report. And I went in to see the battalion commander. It was like the um, Danish insurrection. You know, you sat front in front of a desk and these fitness reports were handwritten. You didn't get a copy and, you know. Yeah. They have you read it and they talk to you about it. And I remember going in to see uh, Richard Raines, who was my battalion commander. And he says, you know, uh, well, I, I I was one of the ones, you know, I didn't believe that uh, blacks could make good officers. I know they made damn good staff NCO, I had a few, but I didn't think they could make good officers. And uh, it's all, but we'll talk more about that later. And he gave me my report. My hands were shaking because I don't know whether not to be pissed or insulted here, you know, yeah. as he's handing this to as he's handing this to me. But then I, you know, I, I read it. I remember my hands shaking because I was trying to hold the paper so I wouldn't let him see how emotionally charged I was. Sure. And the first, in the first line, read, "My number one lieutenant of nineteen, the best one of the best lieutenants I've seen in my twenty-seven years in the Marine Corps." And I looked up at him because, you know, I'm shocked after hearing what he said and reading the paperwork. And he says, but you changed that. You showed me what you can do and color doesn't matter. And I want you to get out there and take care of my Marines. And I was still so stunned. I couldn't say anything but yes, sir. And get up yeah. and, and walk the hell out. But I, I remember explaining that to General Krulak about that experience of how how shocked I was. And he said, well, what did you expect? And I told you from the very time I first saw you is that performance counts. Yeah. Performance can transcend anything. 
Lance Corporal is going to give a second lieutenant a hard time. But what he does not want is a second lieutenant who don't know what the hell he's doing. Yeah. And so that's that's important. And that's what and he's and basically he was telling me that's what you're doing. He said, Lance Corporal is going to give you a hard time because you're a lieutenant. But he respects that you know what you're doing and that when it's the fan that you're going to lead him out of it, he's going to come back home alive. That's what they want from you. Yeah. And I, and I think uh, to to your credit, to your point, um, also important is the bearing to, to read, to read the whole story. Exactly. And, um, and, you know, of course he, he and I have had a number of talks later after that. Yeah. But he he wanted it to be a shock effect because he wanted to realize not only what he was appreciative of what I was doing, but his own growth. Yeah. And understanding that, you know, people should be measured by who they are, not some reputation or some preconceived stereotypical attitudes, but by who they are. And that's what, you know, he says, and that's what's going to keep the core strong. Uh, and when it's in a it's time of adversity, yeah. And I, I definitely it was, it was a learning to me. I, you know, I went there wanting to work harder and climb the hill and motivate, and you know, regardless <laughs> of what color they were or what what they were capable of doing. Yeah, uh, it, it it was understanding on both sides, sir. Now you now you retired in 2013. What did you do the first day on terminal leave? <laughs> I, <laughs> You know, it was it was um, it was a, a bittersweet ending because um, yeah. both of my you know when I came home I was I was scheduled to go home and relax and get ready for my ceremony, which is going to be on the twenty first of September. I came back on the fourth. My mother died on the third. Oh my gosh. My mother was sick. She was really uh, going down. Um, some dementia had set in and I was coming home trying to figure out how I was going to tell her that she was not able to travel because my mother had been to every one of my promotion and, and changed the commands, you know, and I was going to tell her that she wasn't going to be at my retirement. Yeah. And, she, but she died. Um, so I came home uh, uh, then to, because I had to check out in Quantico, and then I was going to, uh, you know, family was at Camp Lejeune, and I was going back there, and and I had to go straight to to Savannah for for that for the arrangements. We buried her on the eleventh, and my stepfather of forty years, they had been married forty years, died on the nineteenth. Oh wow. In, in route to my retirement. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So so those first little days were just kind of like I lost, you know, my, when I when I when I gave my speech at eighth and I on retirement, I told that my mom and my dad, stepdad were in the skybox looking down because they both had passed. He died of a heart attack in, in Lumberton, North Carolina. They stopped to get gas. My cousins were driving them up and uh, he had a heart attack here at that filler station and died. That's, that's tough. Yeah, it was tough. So that first part was kind of down. I, you know, I, uh, I did, I did nothing for um, about a month after that. And 
then I took a job out in California. Well, that's supposed to be a lighthearted question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, I told, uh, I told General Pace, you know, General Pace advised to me when I retired was that I was supposed to take six months off and not do anything and not agree to be on any um, uh, board, uh, you know, that was a non-paying board. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't. Why do you think that is? Did you, is it, is that one of the, is that one of your coping mechanisms is, is to bury yourself in work? Well, well, no, it was to go back to doing the stuff that I had left off of. Uh, um, I had been involved in uh, natural disasters uh, all over the world. And, uh, and the guy, guy um, when he was going to hire me to be his uh, um, managing director for, for the banks of supplying things, one thing was on the table then was getting wells for uh, Indian girls in India yeah. because they had to do the food. They could go to school. They had to take the water. And he was working on that project. Uh, you know that I had uh, been in the, involved in the Pakistani and uh, floods. And he was saying, you know, this is a project that you know you could do. And so I said, yeah, I can do that. It took my mind off of, off of the rest of the stuff and not being involved in what uh, NATO and the United Nations was doing. So, yeah. I took you to a different part of the world. <laughs> um, do you think that was good or bad? I think that was, that was good. I think that was good Yeah, for me because it gave me uh, a chance to uh, stay connected to the international community. It wasn't a complete shutdown. Um, yeah. You know, there, there are two schools of thought of that, you know, decompress, take time, relax and, you know, at that point you had retired. So you, you're not in a financial way of having to work right. You know, you get a chance to a little, a little bit of a, of a, of a little bit of a decompression. Um, but at the same time, there's also the school of thought of, Hey, just get right back into it. Cause as soon as you, if you grind to a halt, you're, it's pretty hard starting back up. You well, know? you know, the thing that um, uh, really got me was that uh, I was talking to my, my doctor who thought that, you know, um, you uh, as as you decompress and you know you can uh, you can discuss how how life was for you in a pressure environment. But he also says that everybody that he knows who just did a quick halt is dead. So you don't want to slow down too much. He says because yeah. he says you know you want to get to enjoy some of your retirement. He says. Yeah. And you don't want to lose all the, all the discipline, all yeah, the drive. Yeah. And, you know, that's basically, so, you know, keep up the PT program, get the work done. And I said, okay. And I, I took him up on that. And then I had a, a friend who had been uh, teaching and was retiring from a principal and he was anxious to get both his retirement and his social security. He got two checks and died. I said, well, that, that was, that's word enough for me. <laughs> so, I say, I got it. Sir, what was the overall transition like for you? Um, and how did you end up as the CEO of Laporte Technology Defense? Is that a company you founded or were you brought in to be the CEO? No, I was brought in to be the CEO um, by um, some, some friends of, uh, remember I told you about uh, Colonel Jones? Yes, yes. Uh, Colonel Jones uh, had a um, a classmate who who uh, when he played football at Oregon, I uh, had a classmate that was uh, did four years in the, in the Air Force 
but um, develop his his own uh, company. And he had uh, become a a, a millionaire for in the uh, in the IT community, you know, in the in the movies making and uh, and all of that stuff. So, and he had a uh, a friend. Uh, uh, Shanat, who was a uh, Indian descent, and they had they had businesses, uh, and and uh, they were in, uh, invited by um, then Governor Pence into Indiana, uh, f- because they had lost all you know the uh, the lot of the businesses um, and manufacturing business had 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 left Indiana, and they had a uh, really thing the only thing that was still a thing is it's potentially to to get government contracts with the defense company you usually see them headquartered here in northern virginia or in southern maryland not not indiana yeah well see uh that puts them closer to uh TACOM, which is the army's amc which is in alabama um and that put them closer to they were there to ensure that the all the track vehicles for the army, um, okay. whether it was a striker vehicle, a Humvee, or now later the JTLV um, vehicles were out and out in that, in that area. And so, what we uh, what he realized is that the at the time the army was looking uh, Oshkosh as well as AM General was looking to bid for the new replacement of the Humvee. Yeah. And that whoever won that contract still would have, you know, between our allies and uh, and because of my connection with all of the uh, charts of Europe and the NATO vehicles of the Humvee, there were some 360,000 vehicles out there that were going to be replaced. Wow. Uh, when the Army did the study, it takes 15 years for them to overlap the new GLT vehicle, which Oshkosh won with that. And therefore, the Humvee had to either have been an upgrade or replaced. And there was a, that was a lucrative contract in trying to, yeah. you know, win that upbeat, uh, you know, that, that particular contract. And that's when he uh, formulated, formed the company and asked me to, uh, to stand that up and to, work with the uh, AM general about uh, what's the because they were the specialists on Humvees and what. So, so AM general did are, are they the ones that won the primary contract? No, um, Oshkosh won the primary contract. AM general was the current maker of the Humvee. What we were bidding for, and uh, frankly, the uh, COVID just screwed that up. What we were bidding for is a package to uh, upgrades that will extend the life cycle of the Humvees as the JLTVs took over in their placement. Okay. Um, yep, yep. And the areas that needed replacing was the, the alternator for, because with the Humvee, we had put so many things on it electronically based that it took, you know, it took extra batteries in the battery system. They're alternating that, you know, they had to have them slaved at night, uh, you know, plugged up because they couldn't be to crank them up. So there, there were a lot of things that needed to be done in that regard. The tires, 
the drivetrain system. So we were trying to put in a bid to to do that. But what happened was is that the uh, and especially saw it in the Marine Corps because the operations slowed down. The requirements to have these vehicles, the number of vehicles for the replacement, and the change in the budget. Yeah, it, you know, everyone blames you know administrations for the uh, lack of money in the military, but yeah. it, it was sequestration by the Congress that really killed the militaries for planning on the R and D portion because they had to sacrifice R and D for current readiness. Yeah. So that's where all the money was going. And so when when the last two budgets gave the services money, they were saying, well, I can I can stand and the lack of military operations. I can stagger having to upgrade the home. I can just wait and replace the home. And that's what the Marine Corps says. I'll just fix anything that goes down on it. And I won't I won't buy I won't buy a package of upgrade. Very good. While you were while you were there at Laporte, uh, what is one job or maybe one contract in support of the of the DoD that you would say you're, you're most proud of your company in achieving? Well, I think uh, probably helping them to to understand our our allies' point of view of what it meant for companies like AM General who supplied them and had a maintenance contract that goes to the life cycle of the vehicle. But because of the wear and tear on vehicles between Iraq and Afghanistan and other operations, we fast forward that. So if you had a life cycle of 20 years, you might be at 10 now. And and the vehicles had become so heavy that the Navy has seen and the Air Force, both in their C-5, C-17 lifts, C-141 lifts, was that it's, yeah. it takes more Saudis now to transport a, a, a service to any place of fighting. And so because of the weight. Yeah. So we had, we, uh, we told them that, you know, for example, the home bees, each one of the doors got to weigh in 500 pounds. So what we did was that we, um, we told them that if you, rather than trying to to upgrade that, then you can start uh, replacing parts and work that out with uh, uh, AM General before they sold out the, the maintenance package. So that, I think that's the greatest thing that we did, and that and that helped them. And, and uh, with a a uh, alternator uh, system that would allow them to get more amps through, uh, through, uh, to the battery and, and run the blue force tracker or any of the, uh, type things, uh, navigational system that they had on. To basically support the digital age. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. For, for veterans that want to get into federal contracting, um, like I said, not just with DOD, but I mean, VA has got a bunch of contracts, uh, department of energy. I mean, there's just all the different departments. There's all these contracts that are out there right now. Um, what advice would you give to someone that says, I want to start a company and I want to serve that purpose? You know, the one thing, the one thing that you uh, mentioned that's important is that the first thing you need to do is decide what you want to do. Yeah. Don't keep it so broad and then decide what the requirements is. I tell everybody, don't just go say, I'm going to get me a contract. 
actually read what a contract looks like, what they're asking you for. And in those contracts, they're asking for that you have a person that can do what you say you're going to do, that you have the personnel and you have the governance of that particular person. When you get my money, what are you going to do with it toward giving me the service that you, you're promising in the contract? So we have... Uh, the government has become very astute in our and our contract officers on how we train them to look at providing the service at at the at cost. So, if you know what you're talking about, you need to know how much would it cost for you to do that. So, when you're bidding for it, you you know that someone cannot do that any cheaper than you do because you know what the requirements are, and that's what they're going to test you out if you're trying to start a business. The other thing is I tell them is that if you're going to start a business, you really need to get the financing based on your business plan because a dream without any money is a nightmare. <laughs> True. <laughs> I'm serious. So you need to know if you're going to, if you're going to go into that, get, you know, get the business plan on all the way, think it all the way through. And I say to them, Plan for if your business doesn't start maturing for the first two years, plug that in because some that first year, all you're doing is paying salaries. Yeah. So plan accordingly. So if you if you're going to hire somebody and they're going to make eighty thousand dollars a year, you need to plug that in. Yeah. As if you're going to spend it. And it's not. And and, but they will be doing the things you need to establish the contract. But, you know, you, 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 you know, this is not a pro bono type thing that you're doing with people. And that's really the, the biggest mistakes that I've seen in startups is that they have the people, but they run out of money. So they get into a, a dire mode. So when they, so the government is playing with them and government say, I'm going to take, I'm a, I'm a take you because you can name that tune in three notes when you really need seven notes to do it. Yeah. And then you lose the contract because of past performance because you didn't deliver uh, what you're doing or you got or you got behind. You know, a lot of those guys know that they have a talent. They've been trained to they can do it, but they have to think it through on how I deliver on what I say that I can do. Very good. Um okay. Sir, I recently saw this month and since we actually set this meeting up that you've been named as the next secretary of the North Carolina Department of, of Veterans Affairs. Uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. What opportunities do you see to help veterans at the state VA level? Uh, people, veterans, and folks who who uh, transition through, whether they are civilian in the government, don't really know as much about the needs of veterans as they do. And so a lot of that is an educational process. So be prepared to be educate, not get angry. Yeah. You know, like I tell a veteran, it's taken a long time for civilians to understand that if you serve 20 years in the military, you should retire. They, they don't, they don't get that. You know, what kind of retirement you get after 20 years? No, 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 no. You got to work till you're 62 or five or whatever. So, so uh, that doesn't, so the thing that, that you're saying is that, no, I might retire, but I'm, I'm not ready to quit. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I want to, I want to give you the basis of my experience uh, that I've had and why I stayed here, why I kept my family here, why I raised 
my kids around this. So, so what I, so what I tell them is, is that they have to also come out understanding that civilians are not necessarily as, as disciplined as you have been. Yeah. The biggest misnomer um, that military people have as well is that the veteran administration understands what you did active duty. Mm-hmm. It was two. They were two different organizations, mainly to to benefit those who passed wars rather than those who are coming out of current war. We've come a long ways. So what we have to do is is that I, I told them one thing was as simple to me. I said, you know, when I transferred from civilian world to the veterans, I had a a, a footlocker full of things that I had of my medical records that I had to scan. duplicate for and scan for, you know, 39 years of the military. That should have been just a push of a button that transferred my medical record from the active duty military over to the hospital system. Looking at my, my helmet bag right now, that's full of medical records. Yeah. I had to do this. I, I, and in a future interview, and it's already in the can, but a future benefits breakdown is going to be talking about just that, the, the electronic health record that the VA is is working with the DOD and, and doing that. That's going to be a huge thing. Well, it is. And, you know, it's uh, because we had some records on fish when we changed over and, and some who we had to have Xerox. Uh, um, it was it was a mess. I mean, they, they are, you know, when I, when I talk to veterans who, who just left and who are reporting for the first time are going through that uh system, they understand that, you know, you got a disc now and it's a little better. You know, what we, what we had was we came with discs, but we didn't have the right uh, operating systems to put them in. So we, we, we worked through that. So, but we are, we are light years away from where we were. The one thing that we have done better is that we have opened VA so that you can actually get an outside doctor to do something for you and you don't have to be a hundred percent disabled to do that. So that's, so we are, we are getting better. Um, but that's, uh, that's the, uh, that's why I tell everybody, uh, when I talk to those kids are in transition, pay attention to what they are saying about the transition as it relates to all aspects of your life, not just, you know, uh, do I get the, do I get to go to VA for buying me a house or whatever. I said, education, I say it's all of those things that you, that you rate because of your service. That's one of the things I like doing about the benefits breakdown episodes that we do here on Born in the Battle is I get to explore that for other people. Good. You know, I get a chance to, to, to go to an office or go to a benefit or go to a program and I, and I, I shake them. I say, well, what do you do? How do you, how do you help veterans and, and how are they eligible for your services? Uh, so if you get a, if you, you know, if you're listening to this and you get a chance, uh, every, five episodes, fifth and on the zeros, uh, it might be a one, might be, it might be a six sometimes, depending on if there's a, if there's an anniversary or a battle anniversary or something, but, uh, check those out in the archives here, born the battle. So at the, at the state VA level, how do you see the state VA supporting that overarching mission? And I had this discussion with, uh, governor Cooper as he was interviewing me for this job is one of the things that the reason why a lot of people, at the uh, eight mil- major military bases that we have in North Carolina, from Bragg to Seymour to the Camp Lejeune, the reason why they stay, why their families stay, is because you help them 
You know, we have about 60 uh, veteran centers throughout the state that as a veteran, you can come in with your DD-14 hot off the print, walk into there, and they can tell you what all you do, what you rate, how you petition for any of the disabilities that you got on your last uh, you know, exit physical, yeah. and what is it that this state does specifically for veterans. Like if you're purchasing a house and you and you are a veteran, you can participate. You can petition for tax breaks. Your state VA centers. These are state VA centers. That's how they. That's how they connect you to all of the all of the, the federal stuff that you rate, and it's to the state's benefit because if you are a veteran in the state and you're receiving disabilities funds. We count that and the VA lists you by state, you know, like $3.9 billion worth of federal stuff goes into North Carolina. And this is what the state does in, in addition to um, taxes on, on your car. You know, some, you know, I'm, I'm currently one of my first things to do is I'm going to talk to my counterparts in both uh, Florida and Virginia because they got some things that uh, for veterans that North Carolina needs to incorporate. For for example, if you had, if you are a veteran, uh, a retired veteran, for example, in Florida, any airport you park in is free. You know. Wow. Yeah. That, that, it's, it, you know, people uh, don't you know add up how much they save on that just the parking and. Uh, and especially if they are better and they're doing business and they got to travel a lot. Anyway, so those things, those are the kind of things that the state can do. But also, we are setting up where job training. For example, if you are coming out of the military and let's say that you are working as a medic or a corpsman, you know, we can uh, send you to school to be employed in one of the in one of the hospitals or in one of the uh, we got four veteran homes in, in, the, in the state. So those are things that uh, we will do if you, if you agree to stay in the state after you, after you get out. I do know another Marine that is going to be, that is going to be working for you. Uh, my, one of my former Sergeant Majors, Sergeant Major Paul Barry. So if you ever yeah. have a chance to look him up. Uh, okay, I'm going to write his name down, Paul Barry. Paul Barry. I'll never forget uh, Sergeant Major Barry when, uh, I was going through a very difficult time in my young life. Uh, I was a, a Lance Corporal, you know, I was working in his S1 and uh, he just took me fishing with his son. Good. You know, just, just, uh, just to, I mean, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. I also never forget Sergeant Major Barry because he was our squadron Sergeant Major. Um, and we had a group of Sergeant Major, uh, Sergeant Major Dingle. So we had Sergeants Majors, uh, Dingle and Barry. I was like, that was not a mistake. That was, that was some monitor just having a, a fun that day. Um, sir, what is one thing that you learned in service that you carry with you today? Your reputation is not what you think of yourself is what other people think of you. Mm. Yeah. And that's, uh, that has been uh, something that's, that's been important to me is do, when I say that I, I, I'm here to help, do you, do you understand that I'm here to help? 
And I often believe that um, if people need help, I, 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 I tell often tell them that I, I don't do autopsies. I don't want to know what killed you. I try to explain to you what killed you. I'd rather be able to help you if you're having problem. You know, like the Southern Major took you fishing. Yeah. He would like he would like to you know help you through the problem. Not not wait till you know you want to jump off a, off a bridge or something. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's I think the one thing is is for me is uh, not what you think of yourself, but what people think of you if they believe that you you are there to. To, to help and to uh, to lead, it's it's been one thing that I've learned that you 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 can you know like the like the old hound dog you can spot them fakes a mile away. Absolutely, sir. Is is there a veteran nonprofit or an individual whom you've worked with or you, whom you've had an experience with whom you'd like to mention? John Kopka and his uh and his and his and his work. Uh, now, Hope for the Warriors, that's it. What does Hope for the Warriors do? Every year they have uh, a, a, a major golf tournament fundraising that brings in uh, celebrities uh, and uh, and the senior Marines generals, uh, four star, the four stars that comes in. And they raise money to help uh, those wounded warriors. You know, it, it's, it's, it's sort of like... Uh, Habitat for Humanity, a House for Humanity. So they help. So they like outfit. Uh, they they outfit them. Their houses, their special vehicles that they have to, uh, you know, to do that. Uh, and these are the uh, warrior uh, Marines that uh, have come through Camp Lejeune, and every year they even they bring they always bring the uh, the senior golf celebrities out tracking. Walter, um, you know, I just got to say, even 10 years uh, since the last time we talked and, and six years out of the Marine Corps, it's still weird not calling you sir. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate that, but you know I understand. And I appreciate uh, you giving me the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, we, we, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, is, the, is there anything else that I may have missed or, or I didn't bring up? Um, or maybe that's something I didn't. I didn't mention that you think it's important to share. I really appreciate the opportunity to tell it. And I am, I, I think you can tell by the, the, my talk that I think that being a Marine is a calling. I think that uh, we, uh, you know, the, the song that says such as regiments hand down forever for any climate place, they come and they, they return to society um, as, as, as better citizens and better people. And being a Marine has been the greatest blessing of my life. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. I want to thank the good Lieutenant General for coming on Born the Battle. To learn more about Lieutenant General Gaskin, well, in addition to going to his Wikipedia page, he still has a bio on Laporte Tech dot com forward slash hashtag leadership. 
This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week was provided by VA's Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital media team honors a veteran with a short write-up on all of our social media platforms and on blogs.va.gov. You can submit your own Veteran of the Day by emailing a photo or two or five and a short write-up to newmedia at va.gov. Jesse L. Brown was born in October of 1926 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. When he was six years old, his father took him to an air show, which was the impetus for his interest in becoming a pilot. While at college, Brown learned of the Naval Aviation College Program, a flight training initiative. A recruiter told him he would not pass the qualifying exams, and even if he did, the Navy did not have African-American pilots. Despite all odds, Brown passed that exam and joined the program. As an aviation midshipman, he attended a series of flight training courses. The last one was at flight school in Pensacola, Florida. While there, he secretly married his high school sweetheart. See, marriage for men in the training program was prohibited until after graduation, and if found out, Brown could have been discharged from the program. However, in October of 1948, he graduated from flight school and became the first African-American to earn his Navy wings. As Brown broke the color barrier, his achievement grabbed the media's attention, and his picture was in Life magazine. Brown was assigned to Fighter Squadron 32 and was aboard the USS Wright before his unit transferred to the U.S. Layette. At the start of the Korean War in 1950, the USS Layette was called for duty. On December 4, 1950, Brown, as squadron leader, was on a strike mission to the Chosen Reservoir in North Korea. About an hour into the mission, one of the pilots saw what looked like fuel linking from Brown's plane, apparently hit by gunfire. According to HistoryNet.com, Brown radioed, This is Iroquois 1-3. I'm losing power. I have to put it down. Mayday. Mayday. Brown crash-landed on the side of a mountain. His wingman, Lieutenant Thomas Hudnert Jr., saw that Brown did not emerge from his plane. Hudnert then crash-landed himself next to Brown's wreckage. In doing so, he risked his own life, a court-martial, and capture by the enemy. Hudner was unable to free Brown, who was injured and was trapped and crushed by the instrument panel. Even when help arrived, the men were unable to free him. Before he died, Brown asked Hudner Jr. to tell his wife that he loved her. Jesse Brown was 24 years old. Brown earned various medals and honors, including a Distinguished Flying Cross, a Purple Heart, and an Air Medal. In addition, the Navy commissioned a frigate in his honor naming it the USS Jesse L. Brown. Navy veteran Jesse L. Brown. We honor his service. Ready. Hey. Five. Ready. Hey. Five. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. You can just send an email to me at podcast at va.gov. Include a short write-up. Let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any pod-catching app on your phone, computer, tablet, or man. 
For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're listening to now is called Machine Gunner, and it was courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song, and was written by Marine veteran Mark McKilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. bullets fly to my brain. Simplify till we're done another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Made bullet in my back Raining down lead Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover the machine Bullets fly day and night Brain, simplify Do or die, another campaign Here we go, lock and load Oh, 331 Lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one